What's up, you Larrys? we got a great show for you this week. Uh, we're going to be discussing the short story Cat People that appeared in The New Yorker recently. has a lot of parallels with the Aziz issue that we discussed in the last episode. Uh, we're also going to be talking about El Greco's play that he wrote and produced in Los Angeles last year, for which he's been nominated for an Ovation Award. And uh, if you're not a subscriber yet to Uncle Monty's Variety Show, we would encourage you to do that. You can go to www.unclemonty.net, where you can subscribe on iTunes, Android, whatever platform you prefer. Uh, we also have Monty merch available there. A uh, little t-shirt for you, maybe a hoodie, whatever you're into there. And, uh, you know, if you're really digging us, uh, why don't you support us on Patreon? You know, for just a buck a month, two fifty, five, whatever you got, we'll throw in some goodies for you. You can read all about it at patreon.com slash Uncle Monty. And, of course, we're at Uncle Monty Pod on Facebook, Twitter, or uh, whichever highly addictive social platform you prefer. All right, without further ado, here we go. Hit it, Joe! You all know my Uncle Monty, don't you? Monty the Magnificent at your service! Joe is money! Oh, how you want! You coming to see Uncle Monty's big benefit show? You know, a long time ago, being crazy meant something. Nowadays, everybody's crazy. All right, we got another. We got another reading series here. You're gonna love this one. So this is a fiction story that was published in the New Yorker shortly after the Me Too story broke. It's got some parallels to the Aziz story. the The story is called Cat Person by Kristen Rupenian. Here we go. Margot met Robert on a Wednesday night toward the end of her fall semester. She was working behind the concession stand at the artsy movie theater downtown when he came in and bought a large popcorn and a box of red vines. That's an unusual choice, she said. I don't think I've ever actually sold a box of red vines before. And then she said this. Do you want any trail mix? And he goes... Well, does it have coconut in it? Because coconut hurts my gums. <laughs> she knew then he was the type of tedious guy she'd been looking for all his her life. That's very prescient. Here we go. Flirting with her customers was a habit she'd picked up back when she worked as a, a whore. <laughs> Back when she worked as a barista, as a barista, I knew. I actually knew a, a woman who was a whore who eventually got a job at McDonald's. I swear to God, this is true. Like when I was at school at University of Wisconsin, and so she was a black chick. She was a whore, and then she got a job as a cashier at McDonald's. And I'm like, Hey, I remember you. You're the whore. And so, like, I bought like my fillet of fish and chicken McNuggets, and I gave her like a twenty. And so, when my change came back, she's like. Can I keep it? You know, so she still had, she kind of like put it like in her blouse as if to suggest this would be a tip, like working at McDonald's. I'm like, well, McDonald's doesn't work that way. <laughs> Whoring can prepare you for a lot of other great professions. But not a cashier at McDonald's or Staples. <laughs> like there's no way that that translates. So uh, flirting with her customers was a habit she'd picked up back when she worked as a barista and it helped with tips. 
She didn't earn tips at the movie theater, but the job was boring otherwise, and she did think that Robert was cute. Not so cute that she would have, say, gone up to him at a party, but cute enough that she could have drummed up an imaginary crush on him if he'd sat across from her during a dull class, though she was pretty sure that he was out of college, in his mid-twenties at least. Was it a woman who wrote this? Oh, yeah, I just said that. All right. I was beating off when you said that. Sorry. (laughs) I didn't hear it because I was busy beating off. He was tall, which she liked, and she could see the edge of a tattoo peeking out from beneath the rolled-up sleeve of his shirt. But he was on the heavy side. His beard was a little too long, and his shoulders slumped forward slightly as though he were protecting something. Like his gut. (laughs) Is this one of the guys from ZZ Top? (laughs) What the fuck? Robert did not pick up on her flirtation. Or, if he did, he showed it only by stepping back as though to make her lean toward him, try a little harder. Well, he said, okay then. He pocketed his change. But the next week, he came into the movie theater again and bought another box of red vines. You're getting better at your job, he told her. You managed not to insult me this time. She shrugged. I'm up for a promotion, so, she said. After the movie, he came back to her. Concession stand girl, give me your phone number, he said. And, surprising herself, she did. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's obvious a woman has written this, and a woman who doesn't know anything about that type of character. Well, you say this type of guy. What type of guy is he? A heavy guy with a beard and tattoo? He's probably a bear. So a few weeks later, they go out on a date. He takes her to a bar, and she can't get in because she's not 21. And this is very humiliating for her, and she gets a little teary-eyed and... Ah, whatever. (laughs) Let me cut to the chase. They go home. The house was in a pretty wooded neighborhood not too far from campus and had a string of cheerful white fairy lights across the doorway. Before he got out of the car... This is his house? I imagine he he would have taken her back to, like, a cabin, right? He kind of looks like a lumberjack. (laughs) And it's like this, like, cabin in the dark woods. It's this dark cabin... And like scrawled in blood on the outside of the cabin, it says, free hugs inside. (laughs) At the front door, he fumbled with his keys for what seemed a ridiculously long time and swore under his breath. She rubbed his back to try to keep the mood going, but that seemed to fluster him even more. So she stopped. Well, this is my house, he said flatly, pushing the door open. The room they were in was dimly lit and full of objects, all of which, as her eyes adjusted, resolved into familiarity. He had two large, full bookcases, a shelf full of vinyl records, a collection of board games, and a lot of art, or at least posters, that had been hung in frames instead of being tacked or taped to the wall. I like it, she said, truthfully, and as she did, she identified the emotion she was feeling as relief. It occurred to her that she'd never gone to someone's house to have sex before because she dated only guys her age. There had always been some element of sneaking around to avoid roommates. It was new and a little frightening to be so completely on someone else's turf. She was used to fucking in bathrooms, like the DMV. (laughs) As she thought this, she saw that Robert was watching her closely, observing the impression the room had made. And as though fear weren't quite ready to release its hold on her, She had the brief, wild idea that maybe this was not a room at all, but a trap 
meant to lure her into the false belief that Robert was a normal person, a person like her when in fact all the other rooms in the house were empty or full of horrors, corpses, or kidnapped victims or chains. But then he was kissing her, throwing her bag and their coats on the couch and ushering her into the bedroom, groping her ass and pawing at her chest with the avid clumsiness of that first kiss. The bedroom wasn't empty, though. It was emptier than the living room. He didn't have a bed frame, just a mattress and a box spring on the floor. There was a bottle of whiskey on his dresser, and he took a swig from it, then handed it to her and kneeled down and opened his laptop, an action that confused her until she understood that he was putting on music. Margot sat on the bed while Robert took off his shirt and unbuckled his pants, pulling them down to his ankles before realizing that he was still wearing his shoes and bending over to untie them. Looking at him like that, so awkwardly bent, his belly thick and soft and covered with hair, Margot recoiled. But the thought of what it would take to stop what she had set in motion was overwhelming. It would require an amount of tact and gentleness that she felt was impossible to summon. It wasn't that she was scared he would try to force her to do something against her will, but that insisting that they stop now after everything she'd done to push this forward would make her seem spoiled and capricious, as if she'd ordered something at a restaurant and then, once the food arrived, had changed her mind and sent it back. Like, first of all, this character, the character described in this story has to be somewhat autobiographical because the nature of how the author identifies with this character. She obviously isn't identifying with Robert. I've seen females write really great male characters. I've seen men write really great female characters. So this has to be somewhat autobiographical. But it's kind of like, what did you expect? You knew he was a bad kisser. You saw that he had a gut and a tattoo and was clumsy. And then you go to his house. It's sort of like, what does she expect? So at this point, she's saying that she feels... She has no choice. She has, she she has no she agency. She has to have sex. She feels she no longer has any... Um, rights. She's waived her rights. Any self-determination. Right. She can't make any choices here to uh, determine what's going to happen in the future. Is that true? You, I, do, you, do you think at this point that she could walk out and, and, and leave? I think if this was a character with any integrity, she could have said, Robert... I do like you. I'm not quite ready. I've had women of great integrity who have slept over for weeks on end and we never had sex. And and at some point I felt maybe we wouldn't have sex. It was clear they needed some time. And I remember being a little frustrated because I was horny and they wanted to go slow. And this is a universal dynamic. Guys want to move fast. Girls want to move slow. If this was a character of any integrity, she could have just said, I am I realize I'm not ready yet, and I'd like to get to know you more, but this is a good first step, something like that. You know, she She's, could have done, she could have chosen any number of strategies to say, I'm not ready. Does the guy, does Robert at this point have an obligation to use your line and say, how are you doing? He doesn't. He has no obligation, although I think maybe we should make that a universal application that men should automatically say that. The the only problem, I mean, the main problem that I have here is just with this, this is the key line. It wasn't clear that she was scared he would try to force her to do something against her will, but 
that insisting that they stop now after everything she'd done to push this forward would make her seem spoiled and capricious. So because she doesn't want to feel spoiled and capricious, she's going to keep going with this. And you could talk about the power dynamic. This guy's older and more mature. She wants access to this world of the older, more mature people. She wants to impress him. She doesn't want to appear to be spoiled and capricious. She doesn't feel that he's going to force her to do something, but she feels that she's going to sacrifice something if she right now says she doesn't want it. So she's afraid to feel spoiled and capricious. Well, she's identifying herself that way, right? You know, why couldn't she have defined herself as, I don't want to seem non-affectionate? Why could her concern be, I just want to make sure that we're not rushing the relationship. Why couldn't that have been her concern? That would have been a more mature thought. During sex, he moved her through a series of positions with brusque efficiency, flipping her over, pushing her around, and she felt like a doll again, as she had outside the 7-Eleven, though not a precious one now, a doll made of rubber, flexible and resilient, a prop for the movie that was playing in his head. When she was on top, he slapped her thigh and said, Yeah, yeah, you like that, with an intonation that made it impossible to tell whether he meant it as a question, an observation, or an order. And when he turned her over, he growled in her ear, I always wanted to fuck a girl with nice tits. And she, want, and she had to smother her face in the pillow to keep from laughing again. At the end, when he was on top of her in missionary, he kept losing his erection, and every time he did, he would say aggressively, you make my dick so hard, as though lying about it could make it true. At last, after a frantic rabbity burst, he shuddered, came, and collapsed on her like a tree falling, and crushed beneath him, she thought brightly, this is the worst life decision I have ever made, and she marveled at herself for a while at the mystery of this person who'd just done this bizarre, in inexplicable thing. After a short while, Robert got up and hurried to the bathroom in a bow-legged waddle, clutching the condom to keep it from falling off. She, uh, she, goes, she goes home. She wakes up the next day. You know, she's trying to sort of take her mind off of it. He messages her. She told herself that she owed him at least some kind of breakup message, that to ghost on him would be inappropriate, childish, and cruel. And if she did try to ghost, who knew how long it would take him to get the hint? Maybe the messages would keep coming and coming. Maybe they would never end. Every so often, the next day or so, she would find herself in a gray, dreamy mood, missing something, and she'd realize that it was Robert she missed, not the real Robert, but the Robert she'd imagined on the other end of all those text messages during the break. Hey, so it seems like you're really busy, huh? Robert finally wrote three days after they'd fucked, and she knew that this was the perfect opportunity to send her half-completed breakup text. But instead, she wrote back, Haha, sorry, yeah, and I'll text you soon. So, you know, she keeps going with this, not really dealing with it, and after a while, she goes to a bar with her friends, and she sees him there, 
She tells her friends, you know, oh my God, it's that guy from the movie theater. By th and uh, her friend Albert, by then Albert had heard a version of the story, though not quite the true one nearly all her friends had. Albert stepped in front of her, shielding her from Robert's view as they rushed back to the table where their friends were. When Margot announced that Robert was there, everyone erupted in astonishment, and then they surrounded her and hustled her out of there uh, as if she were the president and they were the Secret Service. It was also over the top that she wondered if she was acting like a mean girl, but at the same time, she truly did feel sick and scared. Uh, curled up on her bed with Tamara that night, the glow of the phone like a campfire illuminating their faces, Margot read the messages as they arrived. Hi, Margot. I saw you out at the bar tonight. I know you said not to text you, but I wanted you. I wanted to say you looked really pretty. I hope you're doing well. I know I shouldn't say this, but I really miss you. Hey, maybe I don't have the right to ask, but I just wish you'd tell me what it is I did wrong. I felt like we had a real connection. Did you not feel that way? Or maybe I was too old for you, or maybe you liked someone else. Is that guy you were with tonight your boyfriend, or is he just some guy you were fucking? Sorry. When I asked if you were a virgin, was it because you've fucked so many guys? Are you fucking that guy right now? Are you, are you, are you? Answer me, whore. Those are all the texts from Robert. What do you think? Robert ended it on a bad note, didn't he? He, he Robert, did. Yeah, Robert, Robert didn't take the high road. Uh, he didn't take the high road, and uh, again, you know, this is written by a woman, and uh, she kind of, I think, at the end, takes a predictable route to the ending with with this guy. But she does have some interesting insights into the woman, I think, throughout the story. This young woman, uh, as far as. What does it say about the woman that she's not able, first of all, that she's not able to communicate that she doesn't want to have sex with him when they go home? Second, that after having this horrible sexual experience, she's not able to honestly tell the guy that she doesn't want to see him, that, that she didn't like their experience, that she made a mistake having sex with him, that she never really breaks it off. She just kind of fades out, ghosts him, and when she sees him again at the bar, she does something that you know, is kind of embarrassing and, and, and ugly. You it know, sounds like they deserve each other. That was my reaction, exactly. Right. Was the person who published this saying, this reflects a problem in our society? I mean, if that, that would be mistaken. This doesn't reflect, well, I guess it reflects the problem in our society, and that is our society is moving away from intimacy. This doesn't reflect a problem of, like, men exploiting women. What do you think? I think that, yes, uh, she was trying to show a form of men exploiting women that is very subtle and uh, not often talked about. She was, trying to sh she was trying to portray this guy as taking advantage of a young woman who was naive, who wanted access to the world of more mature adults, uh, I think she wanted to explore the power imbalance between them, and I think that they wanted that she wanted to show uh, subtly how this guy was able to lure this young woman into a situation in which she felt that she had no choice but to have sex with him, even though she did have a choice. That's what I think she was trying to show. 
the whole idea of feminism is empowerment women taking charge of their life not guys putting them in a position of disempowerment the author has created a character that has chosen to be disempowered just for our listeners, some of you might not know, El Greco uh, is a playwright and uh, had a musical that uh, was in Los Angeles this year and was nominated for a prize. Do you want to say what it was? Right. So uh, I produced a musical called Siamese Sex Show, which then became Future Sex Incorporated. The name Siamese Sex Show was so abstract to our customers, people would walk into the theater with their arms crossed, not sure if they were getting a peep show, a geek show, a freak show. And so they didn't know they had permission to laugh. They didn't realize it was a social satire. So I renamed the show Future Sex Incorporated, and I think that better communicated the satirical nature of the show. It it communicated that audiences had permission to laugh. So it was nominated for lyrics and score for an original musical. So I'm excited. Um, I I saw the show and was really impressed. Uh, you know, I didn't know what to expect when I came in. I knew this was a self-produced show. Um, you know, walked in, sat down, and was just blown away by what they managed to do in a relatively small space. the The set design was amazing. Uh, the 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 singing, the 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 song. I mean, the songs. The book was incredible. Of course, that's to El Greco's credit, but. Then we had, you know, some really talented singers and dancers, and uh, yeah, it was. I was just really impressed, and uh, I'm not surprised that you were that you were nominated for this award. And when I went up, when I go up there and I win, I mean, I want to go. I knew it. I knew I was going to win this. <laughs> there was never a doubt in my mind I was going to win this award. I knew it. How do you think people would respond if I did that? Do you think people would think it was funny, or do you think they would just think I was the most audacious, out-of-town motherfucker? Some people would get it. A lot wouldn't. But the people who did get it are the people you want to connect with. Right. So I don't think I'm going to do it. But I kind of wanted to do that. Like, who wins an award and goes, I knew it. I just knew I was going to win. I knew there was no chance I was not going to win this award. It was so clear to me. So, you know, um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a TV show that has musical numbers. Those songs stand alone as great songs outside of the show. Mm. And that's kind of what the songs from this show, the songs from from Future Sex, Semi-Sex Show, you could hear on commercial radio. You don't need to know anything about mm. the show. Remember that song, One Night in Bangkok? Uh, One who, Night in yeah, Bangkok. Yeah, I remember. Who did up. it? Who was the artist? Uh, it was ABBA who wrote it. It was oh. from the musical Chess. But no one knew that. It was on radio. No one knew that came from the musical Chess. I didn't know. Right. And so a lot of companies, when they produce that show, the one song they cut is that song because it's this guy's ruminations about having a chess tournament in Bangkok. Why do they cut it? Because they think it's not that necessary to the overarching story when, in fact, that's the... I know, right? So these theater people don't think in terms of, like, what's going to make something 
more commercially viable. That's but on, the hit from the show. But on Broadway, though, isn't that what everybody's after? Everybody's looking for the show that's going to have it's going to be attached to a song that becomes a hit outside right. of the show, and and it turns into a franchise, and there's a movie, and there's a TV show, and it lasts forever. And right, right. So anyhow, but these are like small theater companies. I know at least three companies that produce chess. And all of them fucking cut that song. The one song that, that was so a crossover hit. I think it's fucking stupid as well, too. So you're not expecting uh, a lot of stiff competition. No, what? I'm expecting I'll probably lose because it's like people who are in this circular. It's, so, yeah. it's circle. It's sort of insular. That's all they know. It's These always, people might it's not always like, political and it's right. always who you know. And Right. These songs are kind of an affront to people who has a, have a traditional musical sensibility, right? Who the fuck cares? Right. I think, though, if I win, it would help me as far as my presence in the entertainment industry. Sure. And that night, I do think there will be an opportunity to really network and meet some people. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I would focus on. I mean, I think even, even if you don't win, I think a lot of the smart people in the entertainment industry realize that winner doesn't necessarily mean the best. Right. That, you know, right. It, I remember it, like... Uh, Norm McDonald was on this star search and he lost to this guy called the Bushman. He was from <laughs> Africa, who I think never nothing ever happened. But Norm McDonald came in second to this guy. Yeah. But the thing is, um, getting the show done was a fucking nightmare. I had gone down there like in October of 2016 and uh, I had somebody crush my nose by accident it was a, it was a girl i was dating who squeezed my nose to be kind of playful but she crushed the cartilage because i had had no surgery so my nose had collapsed so i was in excruciating pain when i went down there so i go down there the casting director has one foot in and one foot out he took takes the money to cast the show but he doesn't want to put his name behind it because it's a show that says Siamese sex show it's by some dude from out of town I don't use my real name because I also want to talk to people at a high level of respect as the producer, not the creator. So I use a different name for the creator and hundreds upon hundreds of actors, especially black actors, wouldn't audition for the fucking show. They just were like, we don't know who this guy is. He's not a known entity. You had a hard, you had a hard time getting black characters. Super hard. Because you, there are roles that are written specifically for black characters. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just really hard. And so then I picked up the phone and started fucking trying to call people. It was fucking exhausting. And I was not in my perfect state of mind either. I was kind of in ongoing discomfort. So I show up. And, you know, this is before I had my hip replacement. So I'm holding my nose. I've got a limp. I had a like a little bit of like an like kind of like a torn rotator cuff, too. So I'm like quasimodo. Right. I'm just really all kind of like a, a mess. And the actors, we finally get an actors, a group of actors together that are pretty good, you know, like um, and people are having all sorts of problems with the script. They just think it's offensive. They think it's um, sexist. And so the actors are like revolting it. It was remarkable that no one quit. Like the director thought he can't believe these actors are going to come back the next day because he was so sure actors were just going to quit the show. What were they offended by? Well, the thing is, it's a Trump era social satire. It's kind of 
spoofing the sexist and racist attitudes made relevant by a president who has a disregard for all sorts of minorities and women, right? So it's the perfect satire. I mean, even the early, the the rap for like the song Can't Stop Us Now, he goes, man, y'all can't stop us. Don't even try it. You know, we monocorp. We go wild as a riot. After party, Marriott, Hilton, or the Hyatt. Pussy come free. Oh, why want to buy it? Sinister, right? It's so the CEO is obviously... You know, like uh, it's a it's a, it's an acknowledgement of Trump, and so I yeah I think that you're racist, and you're not woke, <laughs> and uh, what you've done is uh, a violation, making making a bad situation worse, right? And so the thing is, I learned from Siamese Sex Show to get out in front what your statement of purpose is, and so when we recast it for future sex. Part of like getting that email out was this is a satire. We are spoofing these sexist and racist attitudes made relevant by a president who has blah, 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 blah. And then we had no problems casting the second time around. As a matter of fact, we switched out the CEO to make it a woman because what could be more of an affront to Trump than a black woman, right? That's his arch enemy. You had to kind of bring it down to like, let me get out my charts and my pointer and explain the joke to you. Oh. Here's how it. Here's how part A connects to part B. An Isn't Af- that funny? An African American woman from the first show didn't talk to. The, they were good friends, and after the run of the Siamese sex show, they wouldn't talk to each other. Who wouldn't talk to who? The woman playing one of the roles, the African American woman, yeah. wouldn't talk to the director after the run. She was so disgusted by the show and yet she didn't quit so she stays with what, it did, what did she say she was disgusted with she she thought it was sexist and racist she just right? said that, that, that was just the feeling she got right right it was just sexist and racist right right okay. and yet she wouldn't quit she should have just kind of quit the show but well, yeah but toward the end of it the again producer, there's a lot there's a lot of pressure to you know the show must go on right. and all that and she was probably felt committed to the other character the other actors and that sort of thing Right. The, but the, the, did she ever speak up to you during the production? Did you ever have any conversations with her where she expressed those feelings? No, no. She expressed it to after the first table reading. And um, did tell the you director, the director? The director. Did he tell you? Yeah, he said the actors. He said you know he he said to the managing producer that several actors have expressed concerns about the script. Did they ever give you notes? No, no, because I'm not supposed to, I am not, as a producer, to interact with the actors. It's the director's job. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it creates confusion. I yeah. even learned that from the workshop. So yeah, the yeah. director told me that. And toward the end of the run, um, the director said um, the actors really resent him, and they really resent the producer, and they resent me. Several of the actors did. And the woman who played Cherry, you know, we invited her back because she was a pretty good, like, uh, robot. Yeah. You know. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. She was good. I right. remember her. She goes, I w- would like to invite you back for the second one. She goes, well, I need to be very careful about the decisions I make. The only thing she did was making a couple home movies with her friends, right? <laughs> well, okay, go back to making home movies with your friends. You know, it's unbelievable. She was the star. Like, she got such great reviews. Everyone yeah. from the L.A. Times to L.A. Weekly and everyone in between loved it. Mm-hmm. And so what do you need to be careful about? Just so many <laughs> unsophisticated so the thing is she just didn't get that it was a satire because that obviously yeah well the thing is one of the dynamics the story is we have like an assistant to the evil ceo that 
is trying to provoke these actors on his payroll to rebel against him so she can recruit them for her own rebel alliance. Right. And so oftentimes she's speaking on behalf of the CEO, like to provoke Mr. Haji as much as she can. She says at one point, I knew this towel head would like, you know, would like try to like sabotage things. Well, of course she's going to say that because she wants to appease the evil CEO. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so at one point, the CEO, who's very, very racist himself, the actor playing him goes, oh, I'm not going to say that. I'm like, are we supposed to have politically correct villains? I mean, really, that's right. what I was hearing is is really we want to have politically correct villains? Like, what the fuck? Satire yeah. sh- your, should your be... Villains, your villains should be like at the extreme opposite of politically correct. They should be... They should be racist and you know and just sexist and saying all the transgressive things that society has rejected you know right right like you know like he says the n-word he yeah. like you know of course he's going to be racist and sexist right. you know it's supposed to be a scathing satire yeah and these actors were like well i mean i could see that here in san francisco where where theater companies are like well instead of him wanting to take over the world maybe he could be wanting to steal other people's carbon credits. <laughs> oh, and oh my god! And and maybe instead of wanting to kill people, he could just have a series of misunderstandings. So the thing is, let's get so this show actors wouldn't make eye contact. They had like this active disdain. Even getting together like a group photo, like the director goes, "Don't even try. They're not going to want to do it." But we did it. We got a we got a group photo together. But afterwards, like these actors just like, you know, cut bait and left, you know, and we only had a couple that that remained. Um, But the second show, getting people to like audition was a snap because one, it already had a track record. There are already good reviews. There was already a buzz throughout L.A. with the acting community. One of the. reviewers who came was this woman from the LA Weekly who was known to rip the hell out of everything and everyone was really upset when it was announced that she was coming to the show and the producers were even thinking about disinviting her can you imagine like oh my god this is going to be the end and she gave it a great fucking review as far, and she said she said this shows the one problem is it's too fucking long and she was right it was too fucking long she was right. It was like an hour and 45 minutes. It was too fucking long for an hour. So, But everything she said, she goes, some of the plot doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter. But it's true. Some of the some of the through lines. You it's know, a musical. It's You're not mu- supposed to be paying attention to right. it's all like the, the details numbers. of the plot. Right, right. The main concept, really, I like the main concept, but there was some elements. How, like, the, the, the advertising executive, George Thornhill, is able to over throw this company by getting like some media well, into their into their like uh well i i mean i thought that it was science fiction fantasy and so i was able to you know do for, some hand waving do do some forgiveness for things that might not be immediately explainable in current life in in the real world because this is a fantasy world and so you have to accept that you know Things work differently there. There's magic, whatever, you know. Right. You wouldn't understand it. It's the future. Uh, like, yeah. 
I know for like my, but you know, some of the, I think that, yeah, a lot of it was science fiction. I didn't know quite how I was going to get from point A to point B. It's the first time I'd written something like this. So my muscles are still developing. Yeah, I haven't, but yeah, uh, but that's sort of the that's also the part of the beauty of it is that it's it has that that rough, raw, naive feeling that is you know that's fresh, that's full of energy because it is naive and it is coming from this place of innocence, you know, where you you, you don't have all these preconceived notions about oh, what theater is supposed right, to be. Right. So many people I know who are in the entertainment industry writing are like fucks who have done this all their life. And what they do is it's sort of like all they know are screenplays. I'm going to do this because I'm in the industry and this is what people want. So it's like, it's sort of like dialogue speak. It's not even fresh dialogue. They're just kind of trying to like, kind of create these little products that they know are going to work. You know, I will tell you one guy who who's made some money and has, has written some really bad movies. I don't know if I want to say his name is a guy who I knew in college who he wanted to do a comic strip. And so he would keep meeting me and asking for like ideas. Let's give me some more ideas. What are some funny things? Tell me some he more funny things. You wanted to do things. the comic strip in college? When you yeah, were... He did a comic strip in college, but he'd ask me for ideas for his Where was it strip. published? In uh, the college newspaper. Uh-oh. So the college newspaper, he did a comic strip and he asked me for ideas. And so I would always help out, you know. And so when he goes to Hollywood, he starts like creating these screenplays. I reach out to him. Never calls me back. Unfucking believable, right? I'd be ashamed. You know, like, can you imagine the guy who helped me in college? He right. reaches out to me. I would like reach back out to him. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be kind of ashamed. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, people say to this me. Sometimes they're like, well, you know, if you were in his position, no, no way. Because yeah. people like do this to me now. They're like, right. hey, John, can you help me with this? I'm like, if I can't, I, I will say something. Right. Or if I can, I will. Because yeah. it makes me feel good. What a piece of shit. Well, I think that that's, that that's typical, actually, in that industry. And, and, you know, a lot of people move here from places, you know, like the Midwest or the South, and they're ashamed of where they've come from. They want to cut ties with their past. They want to reinvent themselves. That's such a cliche about California is people come here and they reinvent themselves. You know, I mean, you might have been able to do that in like, you know, the 18 in the gold rush of 1849 when, you know, news about everyone and information about everyone wasn't available within seconds. But now, you know, you can't do that. You can't, no one can reinvent themselves really, but people come out here and they just want to deny who they were in the past. Right. You know, you know there is this one woman from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, who went to Wisconsin university of Madison. We knew her. She was part of like the rock scene. You know, she came from a farm. Her name was Betty Bobowitz, you know, just like this dumb hit farm girl. Right. And so and so I so when I move out to San Francisco, lo and behold, who do I run into the street is Betty Bobowitz. And I go, Betty, I go, how are you doing? She goes, it's not Betty anymore. It's it's Zulu Chan. And I go, no, you're Betty. Because I'm fucking retarded. Oh, no, you're Betty. She goes, no, it's Zulu Chan. And I go, no, you're Betty Bobowitz. How are you doing? She's like, I just want to cut past from the time, uh, cut, cut ties with the past. Now, this guy, though, uh, I'm tempted to say his name because he's such a fucking piece of shit. It, like, literally, he's like had big name scripts sold and turned into movies. And, you know, I reached out to him on Facebook. I'm like, hey, man, 
like I'm going to be down in L.A., blah, blah, blah. And uh, there's another um, friend of mine. This was someone who I was friends with in college, and she is a good person. But her brother turned out to be a very successful actor, very famous actor. But I would write her and say, like, hey, I want you to get the script to this actor, your your brother. And she's like, well, why don't you send it to me and I'll see what and I'll take a look at it. And I don't trust her instincts. I don't like her feedback. And I go at one point, I go, I, I don't want you to take a look at it. I just want you to get it to him. And so that severed and, uh, our friendship. Uh, I don't want her feedback. And I don't respect your feedback. She's obviously also like been appointed as a filter. Her brother has has no no no. He did not appoint her. She just feels she like self appointed herself. She self appointed herself. Like somehow she would be able to decide where this project best fits. She's such a. She's a very pretentious and very pretentious sure, insecure woman. I I'm like pretty her. sure I met her one time. I think she came out here to visit you, and we we all went out. I'm pretty sure probably, I probably yeah. But I am telling you this. I just want you to get my story to your brother. Your brother used to spend, when he'd come to San Francisco with his girls, he'd spend time with me. And so I reached out to him on Facebook and I did send it to him, but he didn't respond. It's cool, you know, but, uh, but, but there's, but it ruined our friendship much like I've known girls in my past. There are people whose opinion I depend upon. I need their feedback. I need them to kick my butt. I need them to give me tough love. There are people in my life. I listen. I, I, I wait with bated breath to give me their feedback. I depend on it. And there's women who always give me unsolicited feedback. And I've always at some point have to say to these people, men or women, I go, you know, I have friends in my life whose whose opinions and feedback I depend on, but you're not one of those people. (laughs) And inevitably it kills the relationship. But the thing is, I don't know what else to say. I keep saying to these people, I don't want your unsolicited advice. It only makes me upset. You know, and they're like, well, you're so defensive. I'm like, no, no, I really don't understand the world I live. And I have people in my life whose opinions I need because I never got any wisdom as a child. I never got nurturing or wisdom. So I need my friend's guidance. But you're not one of those people. You only make things worse. And to hear your advice, it's so misguided and so off the mark i really don't want you to give me and 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 of course it's always the people that offer you unsolicited advice just by virtue of offering someone unsolicited advice you're pretty much guaranteed you're dealing with someone who's not going to be offering you good advice (coughs) so anyhow i am excited about the awards because you're a nominee you come in at a high respect level yeah and the dynamic of like emailing some fucker you've never met pales in comparison to like going at a show meeting the guy in person telling a, like a well-timed joke you know seeing that you're not some weird guy dressing nice choosing your words carefully being so, thoughtful being professional have you picked out an outfit yeah i have a suit but what, it's what uh, tell me about it it's a good looking suit but i made it i think it might be an armani suit armani how it is this something you bought when you were like 27 and now you've <laughs> added 10 inches to your girth and no it's something i bought um it i bought it i bought it like nine years ago yeah 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 and so like lately i've been making desserts and i I have like in the last month i've I've been making 
my world famous peach crunch dessert night after. I've like, had that. It's not worth it. No, that's it's, such that's such a midwestern like oh, it's food. So, when it's done well, it's unbelievable. I good. can't even. I right, I can't well, even. That's you. Um, other people want to turn it into its own business. Do you like? Do you like? Uh, what's the thing that Al Franken makes? That that uh, what do they call it? A, the casseroles that they make in the Midwest. A hot hot bake or hot? Oh, I don't know. Hot that plate. Sounds, it sounds hot. like something you'd get in Minnesota. Yeah, right? yeah, it's Minnesota. Yeah, right. just like you know, a casserole that you make. You know, you bake it in a Pyrex pan for you know. Forty-five minutes. You you throw in a little Campbell soup. I can't soup, believe you know little... the name Pyrex. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. It's like in the Graduate. That scene in the Graduate where the guy right. goes, you know, to Dustin Hoffman. I have one word for you: plastics. <laughs> that's that's when Pyrex was created. Well, you know? you know, I I had to buy an Amway Amway starter kit. I don't know if I told you this. There's a woman I was dating in Chinatown, and so. She goes, you know, she got into Amway and she goes, I, I, I go, I want to come over with my friend. And I go, okay. And so they sold me on Amway because then, you know, it's a pyramid scheme, right? Yeah, so yeah. everything I sell, then she gets a cut of the action. Right, right. But she was a terrible saleswoman, but I liked her. So I bought the Amway sales kit. Just How to, much? It was like almost $200 or something. And when, what year? A couple years ago. A couple years ago? Yeah. You mean like in the 21st century? For Amway, yeah. Oh, I thought you were telling me about something that you did, like when you were in college or something. No, no, no. I I bought Amway. Like I had to just buy a, a couple years ago, just to make her happy. I did it. Just, yeah. I, I might as well have just given her the fucking money. You just probably, that would have been actually, yeah, the better thing to do. That would have been better, right? So I just bought it, you know. And you just so, keep the thing going by paying into their fucking, you know, system. Right. right. So. So uh, yeah, I should have just given her the fucking money, but you know, we, she'd be like, "You want to get together." And uh, so we'd get together at a cafe near Chinatown and she'd break out the brochure and then she would just kind of like her English wasn't very good. So she would like just kind of go through the brochure and she'd be like, so just buy. That was just her buy. sales pitch. Just, just buy. buy. Just yeah. buy. Yeah, just buy. All right. So. She's getting she's getting tired of uh, yeah, just, explaining. Yeah, just don't. I don't need to explain. Just buy. Just these do things. it. Yeah. And uh, that worked, apparently. No, it didn't work. I I bought the starters kit just as a favor, but I um yeah I'm excited by this. Uh, I'm excited. I mean, I kind of when if I win, I kind of want to do a shout out to LA's theater scene by virtue of putting down SF's theater scene. Mm. You know, I mean the thing is I I I have to admit I'm a phony, right? Because when the director told me about this whole event. You know, the, the these award show, what is it like sort of like everyone patting each other on the back, right? It's sort of pretentious, self-aggrandizing. I mean, are those words that you would use to describe, you know, your like yeah, lower probably. level like award shows? Yeah, probably. Self-aggrandizing. Yeah. But as soon as he told me I was nominated, my whole my whole attitude shifted. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that award show. It's self-aggrandizing, self-flating bunch of pretenders he's like you're nominated i'm like oh my god this is so big so just total phony mm. but yeah i'm excited i think it's it's like sort of a networking event everyone's there so i'm hoping to meet people who can put these projects in a position to like scale yeah i hope uh i hope they scale i hope uh a lot of the scales on the lizards that you're gonna meet really uh 
going to rub <laughs> off on you. Well, this is the theater scene. It's not like Hollywood producers, but you know, God, you know, the theater scene anywhere. Remember uh, this girl I used to date from New York who was in theater. She goes, John, 95% of theater's bad. And that may <laughs> seem like an intellectually incorrect thing to say, but it's true. It's yeah, true. Yeah. Like so much theater is just bad because if you think about the economics, if you're a good writer, why would you fucking be working in theater? You'd be using your skills writing for TV or film unless, you know, you have um, unless you're like Tom fucking Stoppard. But, you know, I with this woman who said most of the theater is 95 percent of it's bad. In San Francisco, I'd say like 98.5% of theater is bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, probably more than that. There's no, Well, actually, the, the percentage is probably larger now only because I think that there's less theater happening in San Francisco now than there ever has been before. Less the, uh, Certainly less theater of note, but also just less theater. Because... This, the 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 regime, the people who are in the city right now are not interested in theater. They're not interested in the arts, period, really. Really, they're not. Right. I mean, it's like, how many people at Salesforce do you know want to go out and see independent fucking theater? They just want to have, uh, they want to have the opera and the symphony and ACT and... And you the know, parties, they're not even... And the parties and the fundraisers, the shows. Yeah. any place Just where the they parties. can advertise, places where they can, you know, be the sponsors. And, yeah, that's that's pretty much what uh, that whole part of the economy is like in this city. Yeah, well, you know, D.C. said about theater, you know, he's a really cynical guy to begin with. He's like, well, he goes, it's a business that doesn't scale. Well, right. <laughs> I mean... But that's not the end game. My end game with these projects isn't to stay in theater. The end game would be to scale into a film project. And if you have a successful theatrical project, there's good chances of that happening. So, I mean, that's the end game for me is it for it to scale into cinema, not just like stay in the realm of theater. And that's really an intellectual property business. That's not a, a business about th- that's really even constrained by... The, the idea of scale with an intellectual property business you're just selling the rights to the use of something you've created first for a small audience then for a larger and a larger and a larger he's a, he's a, he's that's a cyn- the ultimate scalable business right. he's a cyn- he's a cynical guy i mean the thing is if you've got you've got intellectual property there's all sorts of ways to slice and dice it you know you can do merchandising you can do licensing I mean, it doesn't have to be fucking Phantom of the Opera to be like a success. You know, there's all sorts of different revenue streams. So, I don't know. I think the only thing to fuck this up that evening to fuck it up is if like, if our friend Roy shows up. Oh, uh, what? Roy B. Yeah, yeah. Because he's down in L.A. Oh, he's down there. Yeah. So, what is the last thing you heard about Roy B? The last report you got? Well. His sister was going to go see our friend Double K for to get her nails done, and she canceled, like, you know, flakiness runs in the family. But I swear to God, who the fuck knows what's up with that guy? He's either going to be in jail or, or 
jail or the mental hospital. <laughs> he's but been the, in the mental hospital. Yes, but but there is a chance he could have ended up being like wildly successful. I mean, I did go to his like website and it kind of looked good, but who the fuck knows? Anyone can make a good looking website. But he's he's like down in L.A. Of course, he owes me a ton of money, and uh, you know you're never going to see a penny of that shit. Never going to see a penny of it. I see you yawning right now. Because I've had, I fucking drink wine. I don't drink much. So when I drink, it just no- knocks me on my ass. I sprung for the good stuff, okay? okay. Good. I'm not making you drink swill. <laughs> right. Nothing, nothing that was, nothing that was in. You're not making me drink a two-buck chuck. No two-buck chuck that was in, you know, the Sonoma County fires, and you're no. drinking the ashes. <laughs> None of that. I knew a girl who was uh, a divorcee. She was a. A Chinese woman who uh, was married to a doctor in Sonoma, and she had gotten divorced recently. So shallow, Jesus fucking Christ! We were out. She had nothing to say. So these shallow people also part and parcel to that. They're so fucking boring. And she said to me at one point, she goes, "What is your dream car?" <laughs> and I said to her, "Any car without you in it." <laughs> And what'd she say? She just didn't even hear it. Like shallow people like that just don't, they, they don't hear what other people say. It's just like, she wasn't even listening. Yeah. Yeah. I go just any car without you in it. (laughs) I said that like, yeah, like any woman, what is your dream car? What is, what car do you dream of? It's like, could you be any more vapid? I just think, you know, you really should have thought of a better ending. You oh, really you, you ended for us. No, I no, I I really think that uh you could have prepared a little better and had a better ending loaded up when you came here because you've always got to have something good to end it with. And I just don't think that you really. All right. All right. Here, here's the ending. I said before, this is the ending is our friend Roy B who during the dot com era worked as a project manager. He was just like a street hustler everywhere. He went, people would call him a street hustler. (laughs) And, uh, he, uh, he had a job. There were these two consulting companies that did web design. One was called Scient. The other was Viant. Do you remember yeah, those yeah, two? Yeah, yeah, So I think he worked at one of those two. Right. And he hadn't shown up to work for three weeks. He just had, um, he got bored easily and he hated project management. So he didn't show up to work for three weeks. And so finally when he shows up, his manager says, uh, Roy, I need to talk to you. Uh, and they grab a conference room and she goes, you know, you haven't been coming to work. You've been absent, and I just don't know if you're happy here. He goes, well, how can I be happy here? How can I possibly be happy here when as a company, we haven't reached any of our milestones? We have not done what we've promised on behalf of our customers. And I know customers are frustrated. Of course, I'm unhappy. And his manager, he does this Bengali's manager goes, well, I owe you an apology. I go, that's on me. And uh, and I will do better. And so then they have an all-hands meeting the next day, and they go, we need more leadership. We need more leadership at this company because good people like Roy over here. 
isn't able to do the job he wants to do. He's not able to satisfy customer success. He's good people like Roy are like good people like Roy are committed to having our customers be successful. And he's not able to do that because he doesn't have the support he needs. Now, who's going to take a le- more of a leadership here? And so he goes, I will. <laughs> <laughs> and so Roy raises his hand and the CEO of the company goes, no, Roy, you've done enough already. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucked up, right? And then uh, and then the next day he like quits without a, uh, without even like a week's notice. He just quits. <laughs> so as long as he doesn't show up at this uninvited because i'm sure he probably has heard then i'll be fine because if he shows up i it's either i can't if i ignore him it'll be a scene and if i acknowledge him then it'll be a scene and he always fucks things up all right so that's the ending hit it joe you all know my uncle monty don't you monty the Listen, at your service. Tell it to Marty. Paul, how are you You coming to see Uncle Martin's big benefit show? You know, a long time ago, being crazy meant something. Nowadays, everybody's crazy. 